Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church family. All right. I know it's the 930 service, so the good morning's a little lame, so we're going to try it again. Good morning. All right. There it is. There it is. And we got coffee out there. So afterward, you know, just just load up. No, it's it's really great to see you guys. So it's not officially summer, but it feels like summer, right? I mean, it's like people are heading to the beach, I'm noticing. Um, it seems like offices are open more, so there's more traffic on the road. Um, and what I'm finding with more traffic on the road is I'm finding... Um, I don't know how to say this. I guess they're angry drivers. I'm finding more angry drivers on the road. So, you know, have you ever been driving down the street and had someone around you just seem like a really angry driver? I know none of us have ever been that driver, right? But uh, maybe someone around you who's kind of an angry driver, kind of cutting you off, shaking their fist at you. Maybe a little something like this guy. Anybody ever driven like behind this guy or had him uh, drive near you? Well, I I would say this. Let's put ourselves on the road for a second. Imagine yourself in this situation. So imagine you're you're driving down the road. You're heading over to St. Francis Hospital over there to see a friend of yours. Um, your friend's doing okay, so that's good. You're just going to spend some time with them, and you're, you're driving along. And all of a sudden, you see behind you this guy. And he's tailgating you, and he's like, He's obviously frustrated, and he's pounding the, the, um, the steering wheel, and then he kind of whips around you and cuts you off, and he's just, he's just totally erratic. And then you watch him up ahead, and he's doing the same thing to other drivers. And here's kind of the funny thing that I notice that happens a lot. Like, I'll see someone driving like that, and then there'll be like a traffic light up ahead that's red, and he'll be driving like a maniac, but then when we get to that traffic light, we get there at the same time, right? And it's like, what was all of that worth? And you, anyway, so he's just doing this over and over again, and he's tailgating people and he's cutting people off and he's shaking his fist out the window and he's going nuts and then you finally you kind of lose sight of him but you get to the hospital and you're about to park your car and what car do you see in the spot next to you you see that very guy's car all right so now you're thinking to yourself okay I'm gonna go into this hospital and uh, I think I might have to say something to this guy I might have to give him a piece of, of of my mind right and it's like what are the things that you're gonna say to him when you see him because As I saw him driving around the road like that and tailgating me, I have written a story in my mind about who he is and what is going on, right? And the story's pretty simple. That guy's a jerk, right? Like, this guy is inconsiderate. He only cares about himself. And he doesn't care about the safety or well-being of others. He's just driving around like a maniac. So you're going in there ready to give him a piece of your mind saying, you know what, man, you cannot drive your car like that. You're putting everybody at risk. And you go inside that hospital and you see him running through the doors with his four-year-old son in his arms. And his four-year-old son is passed out and he's, he, he seems like he's seizing a little bit. And this guy's running around asking for help, asking for help. And he gives, the, uh, gives his child over to the, to the medical staff. And they, they, they take him and they put him on a stretcher and they roll him away. And this guy right here, he just plops down on 
a chair and he just puts his hands in his head. And somehow now, there's a new story that's been written about this guy that shapes and impacts the way that we see him and our, our posture towards him changes. We went in there ready to give him a piece of our minds, but somehow the, our posture towards him changes. And now you're feeling empathy and you want to help and, and good church family that we are, we go and buy him a cup of coffee and sit next to him and, and, and seek to just encourage him. Stories reshape how we engage with one another. And, and the stories reorient so much, uh, re, they reorient us so much that um, they bring people together who have no business being together. And there's been this theme that's been unfolding in this series that we've been going through in 1 Corinthians. This theme of, of sort of other focusedness, right? Like a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how our freedom is available to us to bring benefit to others. Well, last week, Robert drew the short straw and I get taught through this passage about head coverings, which was really hard to navigate. But at the end of the day, um, we were seeing how we were called to this sort of interdependence on one another. And now Paul addresses sort of the supernatural power of the gospel to break down barriers and bring about that togetherness. And he does it through a conversation about this meal called communion that we're going to have together in a few minutes. Um, so if you don't already have one of those little communion cups, you know, you can grab one in the back or you could probably pop your hand up and an usher can bring you one. But we're going to share in communion together in a few minutes. Um, and um, what Paul does as he navigates through the rest of what's chapter 11 in our Bibles is, is he starts to tell these three different stories. He tells the story about the situation that the Corinthians are in, highly divided. We're going to see that in a minute. He tells the story of the good news about Jesus Christ through the communion meal. And then he tells a third story of, of how this story about Jesus and the good news about Jesus reorients and reshapes the way we see the world and what it brings about as a result of it. And it's, it's really powerful. So let's dive right in together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. It starts like this. He starts with the story of these two tables, the situation that they are currently in. And he starts like this, verse 17. He says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Ooh, that's got to kind of hurt a little bit, right? Coming from Paul, who spent like a year and a half in Corinth, and he, was, he helped plant this church. And, um, you know, people were looking up to him for wisdom and counsel. And when he says something like, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Well, that's got to hurt. We got to hear a little bit more, more about that. Look at what he says next. He says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it, no doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So he's acknowledging that people are different. He's saying, listen, you're not all the same. You're different from one another. As a result of that, there's divisions among you. And what he's getting at there, when he talks about uh, to see who has God's approval, like uh, another translation that you'll see in some of your Bibles is this idea uh, of determining who it is that is genuine, who it is that is authentic, who it is that is approaching another person from a heart that has been changed by Christ. So he goes on to say this. He says, so then, 
when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Because part of what they were, the early church was doing when they would gather, just like we do here as a church family, is, is engage in this communion meal together. So it says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Um, don't you have homes to eat in and drink? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Paul, sometimes he gets really intense with these guys. So let me just give, paint you a little picture of what it is that's happening uh, in this time. So in, in a home in Corinth where the church would gather um, and share in a feast together and share in this communion meal together, there were these different rooms. So there was this inner dining room called the triclinium. It looks something like this in Roman uh, and Greek homes. And just about 10 or 12 people could gather around this table. And the people who are in that room would be getting the finest meat and the finest fruit and the finest wine. And they would be enjoying that meal together. And then outside of the triclinium is this room called the atrium. In Greek, it's the atrium. It's where we get the word atrium, right? So in this area, there'd be 50 or 60 more people. And these would be sort of the workmen and the slaves and the common folk and the, and the, um, the, the poor, poorer parts of um, that society. And they would be relegated out to this outer area in the atrium. And they would be given the leftovers. They would be given the spare meat, not the finest part of the meats that they were eating, the spare meats and the spare beverages and the, uh, the spare food that was left over. And, and listen, we look at that sort of system and we feel like, oh man, that is like really that's so classist, and it seems kind of um, like, oh, how do they even live like that? How do, how do some of the folks eat these fine foods and then just totally ignore the people that are out in the atrium? But I think we need to appreciate that it was extremely normal. Like, it just felt normal because it was normal. There's lots of things like that that, though we don't feel great about, they are normal to us, isn't there? What are some things, like, in our, in our everyday lives right here in our modern times that that comes up in. Well, um, I would say that last night, 200,000 people on Long Island who live below the poverty line likely went to bed without a meal. 200,000 people on this piece of dirt that we all live on. You go a little further out than that, a billion people on this planet live on less than $1.90 a day. The average Long Islander lives on about $140 a day, right? Three billion people, one in three people, so look to the person to the right and the person to the left, one in three people on this planet don't have access to clean water. So we hear that, and it hurts our heart, sort of, right? And we think about that, and we're like, oh, that's not right. But in 10 minutes, we're going to be like, should we go to Chipotle for lunch, Right? And it's not because we're bad people. It's because, sadly, it's the state of our world. And the church is working to bring about God's renewed world, right? But here, it was normal. This is, what they, this is how they lived. It was a normal situation for them. So when they, when they take a look at what's happening, and when they say, so then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. Uh, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. The wealthy who are in the triclinium, in that smaller room, they were looking out for themselves without regard, really. They just weren't thinking about the people who were outside. It doesn't necessarily mean it was malicious, but for sure, they just weren't thinking about them. They were just living in this normal social paradigm in which they existed. 
So it says, as a result of that, one person remains hungry, hungry, and another gets drunk. It's this stark difference. You know, he's not really talking about the drunkenness so much. He does get into that later. But he's talking about this stark difference between those in want and those who have plenty. And he says, don't you have homes to eat in or drink in? Don't, do, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Paul is just looking at this situation and being like, this isn't right. I know it feels normal, but this isn't right. So Paul paints this initial picture of these two tables. This table in the triquinium with all the finest foods for the wealthiest few. And then out here in the atrium, and then it's really not two tables because they didn't have tables. They're sitting out on the grass, on the dirt, on the floor, eating the scraps that are left over. And this is supposedly one family, the family of God. So the issue before them is that he's, address that he's addressing is, that is one of separation and one of injustice that does not align with the good news about Jesus. So what does Paul do? How does he navigate us through this? He tells another story. The story about Jesus. So he starts like this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. So th that little preamble kind of shows up a few times um, in the scriptures. And, and what it is that he's doing here, he's getting ready to tell them what uh, we would call, when we look back in ancient times, what we would call oral tradition. So before there were iPads and emails and even the printing press to be able to write down stories and circulate them to the masses, um, history was told from person to person, from group to group in what was called oral tradition. So he's saying, hey, listen, I'm about to share something with you that has happened. And here's something interesting. So He's going to talk a minute, in a minute about the very first time Jesus shared this meal with his disciples. And some of us are familiar with this. It's told in Matthew and Mark and Luke. Um, but Matthew and Mark and Luke were written like 40 years after 1 Corinthians was written. 1 Corinthians was written first. So sometimes we'll read this and be like, oh, yeah, yeah. He's talking about what, what Luke wrote, you know, um, about communion. But actually, we're about, what we're about to read is the very first time that anyone put pen to paper about this, this experience that Jesus had with his disciples. That's pretty cool, right? All right, well, you don't think it's cool, but I think it's cool. So, yes. So, look at what he says here. He tells this story. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. He says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Paul here is speaking of the Lord's Supper. He mentioned it earlier in this little uh, paragraph that we've been reading, right? He's talking of the Lord's Supper, which he's actually referring back to the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples before he went to the cross. And that meal that Jesus was having with his disciples was the Passover meal, uh, a long-standing Jewish tradition. Um, and the Passover meal really had two main elements to it. One was to kind of remember the exodus of the Jewish people from bondage, from slavery into the promised land. And the other was to kind of look forward to what they were hoping for as they would celebrate this Passover meal, that someday one would come, a Messiah would come, who would bring them forgiveness of sins once and for all and bring about the renewal of their hearts that they had been longing for. And this Passover meal spoke to those two things. So at the beginning of the Passover meal, a rabbi would normally stand up in front of the people that he was sharing the meal with, and he would hold up a piece of bread, 
And he would say, almost verbatim, because this is still the, the, the verbiage that's used by rabbis today in modern day during the Passover meal. He would say, this is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. And he, they would break that bread and they would share that to remember the hardship of, of, and the consequences and the difficulties that come along with the sin and their rebellion toward God. And what it was like to be in bondage, in slavery in Egypt. And they break that bread to remember that. So what Jesus does is Jesus lifts up a piece of bread just like that. And they're all getting ready for him to say what they know he's supposed to say, which is this is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate. And Jesus says, this is dot, dot, dot. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The affliction of their forefathers in the bondage of slavery brought about, that was brought about by really their own disobedience in many ways is not just something that's distantly remembered. Jesus is now saying that it, all of that is born upon him, upon his body. Guys, this was groundbreaking at the time. We've got to appreciate, even as Paul is telling them this story and reminding them of these words of Jesus, it's this groundbreaking thing. First of all, you don't mess with the Passover liturgy. All right, so all, already it's like a little offensive that he's even doing that. And, and he's all, now Jesus is saying, I'm the Passover lamb who gives life. And this, friends, this is the story of the gospel that Jesus is sharing here, that Jesus takes upon himself the guilt and the shame and the sorrow and the sadness and the weight of our sin, the weight of that affliction. And he takes it upon himself. This is my body, which is for you. He's saying, I'm going to take that affliction that you would normally talk about during this meal. He's saying, I am the one now who is going to take that upon myself and his body breaks for the sake of the broken and for the sake of the needy who have no ability to bear it on their own and when we share in this meal and what Paul's communicating to them is that we step into that story as we experience that reality that reality that Jesus's body was broken for the weak and the needy think of it this way it, it, it has the ability to truly reshape us so imagine if you were like holding like a heavy, heavy backpack or, or just like just a ton of weight on your back. And if I'm carrying it like this and I'm, I'm trying to keep this weight on my back, I have to crouch over like this. And the only thing that I can see is myself. I can't see you. I can see my feet and I can see the step that I'm taking. And the only thing I can see when I have this on my back is myself. And what Jesus is saying here is this bread of affliction that our forefathers bear and that we bear, this, this weight on our back, is now placed onto the body of Jesus. So I take it off my back and I put it on his. And what is it that comes as a result of that? But for the fact that now, instead of being crouched down like this, I am now free. It reshapes me and it reorients me. And because that weight is gone, I can stand up straight and I can look out at all of you and I can see you in a way that I've never seen you before. And that is made possible because the weight of that affliction is now placed upon Jesus. It reorients us. And with that burden of affliction off our back, it reshapes us and we can see others and we can offer ourselves for the good of others. 
It's, and that's the generosity and the power and the sacrifice of Jesus now made available to us to reshape us. And there's a richness to this, friends. There is there's that now unhindered by the weight of that affliction, reoriented by it to really see one another. That's the reason why uh, a couple of weeks ago we looked in chapter 10 and he says, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body for we all share the one loaf. Because now, because the, the weight of our sin and our guilt and our affliction has been placed on the back of somebody else, we are now free to truly see one another in the way that we were created to all along. To really see one another. And this is what he's getting at here. This is why, you know, though there are many, they are one. Doesn't say that they're the same. And we look around this room, and I love our church family, because you will rarely find a more diverse body of followers of Jesus than you will in this room. We have people from different nations, ethnicities, backgrounds, socioeconomic statuses, professions, like, you name it. And it's such a beautiful thing that you look around this room, and we see that we sit together. Black, white, rich, poor, conservative, progressive, whatever are the different things that make us different from one another. Right? Amen. Amen. And that happens because of the power of the gospel to reshape us and reorient us. So as a church family, we declare this together every week. If you have your little communion cups, I'd love for you to, to pull out the bread, if you would. And each week, we speak this liturgy together that I want to uh, just go through together today as well. If you would join me in this, it reads like this. It says, We exchanged your glory for created things. We exchanged the truth about you for a lie. And we exchanged natural loving behaviors for selfish passions. We were dead enough. Before we eat this together, just take a look at these words that we speak together every week as a church family. That the truth that we were created for, we've chosen to substitute with a lie. What is the lie? The lie is that even though this weight has been taken off my back and has been placed onto the body of Jesus, that we still stay in this position. And that's the reason why it says, you know, we've exchanged natural loving behaviors for selfish passions. It's because we are not allowing for the power and the goodness of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ to reorient us and reshape us. It's natural for us to love. It is natural. It is good for us to be turned outward toward others. That's what this is getting at. And and the words that we say together continue like this. It says, Yet you made your son Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might be made righteous in your sight. He... Amen. It's an invitation for us to exchange a lie for what is true. That our guilt and our shame and our sorrow is all born on the back of Jesus. And so his body was broken. And so we say, blessed are you, Lord, our God, king of the universe, who brings forth the true bread from heaven. We break this bread to share in the body of Christ. We do this in remembrance of him. Let's eat together.
Amen. So Paul goes on telling this story. And here in our church family, the way we practice is we flip our little cup over and there's wine on the other side. But in Jesus' day and in the day of the early church, when they would have this Passover meal, they would share in this portion of the meal together. They would feast on an actual meal together and they would eat together and they would talk about all of the amazing things that God is doing in their lives and they would celebrate the reality of what this bread that we just ate together represents. And then towards the end of the meal, Jesus models for them the way that, uh, what it is that would come next and it's this. Jesus said this and this is Paul continuing to tell Jesus' story. He says, in the same way, after supper, he, Jesus, took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we would hold this cup up. What would normally happen in the Passover meal is that, again, the rabbi would get up just like he did with the bread of affliction. He would hold up this cup. And they would take four different drinks from this cup throughout the course of the meal. And on the third one, which was after the actual eating of the meal, he would hold this cup up and it would be a symbol of the coming Messiah. It would be the rabbi saying, this is the cup of blessing to remind us that the Messiah is coming, that our affliction will not go on forever. And it's their way of remembering that. And when Jesus sat down and he has this, this meal with his disciples, he holds up a cup just the same way that the rabbi would. And they're getting ready for him to say what every rabbi should say at the Passover meal, that the Messiah is coming. But instead, he says, this cup, dot, 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 is the new covenant in my blood. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of this promise of what you've been waiting for. That as you've been carrying around the weight of your sin, and as from generation to generation you've been going through this cycle of, of try to be obedient, not make the mark, need to sacrifice and repent, and then start again, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. He's saying that cycle now is coming to an end. Because the promise that you find in the, in the Old Testament that one will come who is going to renew you from the inside out. The promise of Jeremiah chapter 31. That from the inside out, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Jesus holds up this cup and he says, that new covenant, covenant is now completed and made and fulfilled in me, in my blood that is shed for you. Declares that this new covenant would be poured from the cup of salvation in his blood. And so that's why we say, as we drink this together, so you can, if you have your cups, you can, you can turn those over and, and, and open those up. As we think of this new work that has come about in Jesus, we say, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in his blood, which is poured out for my sins and your sins and the sins of the whole world. Let's drink together. So what is all of this? What is this symbolic meal that Jesus was having just in the, in the rhythm of, of a Passover meal together? This, it's, it's the gospel. It's the story that Jesus takes upon himself, the guilt and the shame that we deserve. And Jesus pours himself out for the broken 
and the needy. And as we are reshaped and renewed by that sacrifice, we pour ourselves out for the needy and the broken as well. As we are reshaped from one that looks only inward at ourselves to one that's now reshaped and reoriented and able now to look at those around us, it totally changes the way that we see everything. And what Paul has laid out so far, he's laid out sort of these two tables where the wealthy and the poor are eating separately. And he, and he tells this story of Jesus' sacrifice that makes us new and reshapes us and reorients us. And he talks us through quickly how that change actually takes, takes the place of that story of two tables. Look at what he says here. He says, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So this is a very misunderstood passage in the scriptures. At a minimum, we can know for sure that what it does not mean. And it does not mean that we somehow need to make ourselves worthy or to be worthy in order to partake of the Lord's Supper. Because with all due respect, it's kind of like the point of the whole thing is that Jesus came for us when we were weak and unworthy to be able to come into his presence. It's really what this, these symbols really mean is that we are in fact not worthy. And this, this is not saying that we somehow need to make ourselves worthy or become worthy in order to partake in this meal. The gospel is not this idea that we need to clean ourselves up and come to, in order for us to come to Jesus. One thing I love about our church family here, in all of our, in all of our diversity, as I've gotten to know so many of you, and as, as you've gotten to know me, we all have complicated, complex stories. There's, it's, it's a church of, of messiness in a lot of ways, of, of, of broken marriages and relationships and anxieties and um, depression and anger issues like that guy who was at the beginning. All that stuff, listen, that exists right here in this room because we are not worthy on our own to be able to come before Jesus. But the good news of the gospel is that God pursues you. That from the very moment that we decided to redefine good and evil for ourselves, God enters into the Garden of Eden and he asks one question of Adam and Eve. He says, where are you? And the chase begins. The good news about Jesus is, the good news about Jesus is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the good news of the gospel. And, and so... The point here is not that we must be worthy in order to partake of the Lord's Supper, but that we ought to give worth to this meal. Give value to what it is that this meal is communicating when we eat it and together. What it is that it symbolizes. That this story has the power to change us. To change us from the inside out. And what is it going to be, what is it going to mean, what is it going to look like for us to partake of this bread and feast on it and taste it and know that it's as real as the thing that you're touching that you put on your mouth and that the, the, this, this cup and what it symbolizes is as real as the taste on your taste buds when you take a, a sip of it. This reality that this story has the power to change us from the inside out, to reshape us and to renovate in our, our hearts in a way that we never thought possible, to become the new kind of humans, the new kind of community, Community that we were intended to be all along. That is not what was happening in Corinth. And that's the reason why Paul is telling these stories. Look at what he goes on to say. He says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat, well, 
So let's stop there for a second. Examine themselves for what? And this is where a lot of confusion has come in interpreting this scripture. But he actually tells us in the very next sentence, right? Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. Examine yourself for what? For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now, there's some disagreement about what this means. And some scholars say that, um, that uh, referring to discerning the body of Christ has to do with um, something about the actual physical body of Christ. But the vast majority of scholars say that for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ is referring to the body of Christ being us right here. This, this church family. And that actually makes a lot of sense because just a few verses earlier in chapter 10, we saw that he talks about the one loaf and the body of Christ, some of the people. And what we're going to see in the next chapter, which I'm very excited about, is he fleshes out this really profound metaphor about how we here as a family of followers of Jesus are like a human body. There's arms and there's legs and there's eyes and there's um, all different parts of the body that work together. And, and so what he's getting at here when he says... For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ is those who eat and drink without looking up and thinking about the, the people around you. That's what this whole passage has been about, isn't it? It's about not, not having a group of people enjoying the finest and a group of people getting scraps, but seeing the people around you, seeing them in the fullness and the wholeness of who they are and valuing their life and their dignity and giving yourself for their benefit. That people who have no business being together are somehow together. The point there, let, letting the gospel change you and leaning into the selfless person that you are actually created to be. We are not fighting to become something we're not. We are fighting to become more of the people we already are. This is who you were created to be, friends. You were created to give up your rights for the benefit of others. We were created to live in a world marked by that kind of generosity, marked by that kind of compassion, where people everywhere are giving, gladly giving up their own rights to protect themselves and to, to feast on their own private supper, to give up those rights for the benefit of others. And when I do that for you and you do that for me, we live in the world that God created. We live in heaven. It's heaven on earth. And it's going to be perfected one day. And that's awesome. That's the power of what he's talking about here. So he goes on and he says, that is why many of you are weak and uh, sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, that, uh, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. I mean, again, these are such, these are such um, mis misinterpreted passages so often, but he's writing these to a group of believers, right? Very first line of his letter to 1 Corinthians, he says, to the church in Corinth. He's writing to a family of followers uh, of Jesus saying, hey, look at one another differently. Let, let the power of what this meal symbolizes reshape and reorient the way that you see people around you. And we tend... Um, just kind of a Western thing to make this communion meal that we have very individualistic. Like this is mostly about me. But it is one loaf shared by one body where the many in all of our differences don't become the same but supernaturally become one. And that's the power of the good news about Jesus. 
And so the effect of the gospel, there's this story of two tables. There's this story of the good news about Jesus that's told through this communion meal. And it, it, it feeds into a third story, the one that we were created for. And this passage closes like this. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat. What does it say? Together. Together. You should all eat what? Together. Together. For anyone who is hungry should uh, eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. That passage goes on to say. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. This is how we were created to live, friends. The, the triclinium people and the atrium people, even though it made no societal sense for them to eat together, for them to, in fact, come together. It did not make sense in that social environment. But for them, for the wealthy to come into the atrium and the poor to come into the triclinium and let those walls come down and that they would break bread and pass it from one hand to another, from slave to master to worker to governor to whoever it might be. And they would pass that bread from one hand to another. And in the early church, like I said earlier, when they were doing this rightly, they were living this out organically. They were having this communion meal where they were breaking bread and remembering Jesus' body. They would feast on a meal together. They would share in that cup to set the tone. And then they would have their gatherings like this, where there would be public reading of the word and there would be, um, there would be um, teaching from God's word and all of this, this good stuff that, that we enjoy. And this is not prescribing exactly how we should do it or the order of things. I mean, the way that we do it as a church family is beautiful and I love it. But the point is, the entire time together was refocused and reoriented around seeing people for who they truly were. The people who had no business being together were together. I think that the question that it leaves for us as we close is, would we do the same? Would we do the same? Look, look around this room friends like the story of Jesus brings people who have no business being together together and as you all get to know one another I know there are there are there are topics we don't touch right because we feel like they're too divisive right Republican or Democrat right Mets or Yankees right? Giants or Jets Listen, there are some topics that maybe we just don't touch because they're too, they're too divisive. However, the beauty and the power of what this meal represents is that it, it changes us and reorients us and reshapes us so much from the inside out that we live in the way that we were created to live, that people who have no business eating at the same table and discussing important things eat at the same table and discuss important things. And they're known by each other. And they're shaped by each other. A willingness to lay down my right to be right, my right to protect all that, that I believe, and to be open to know you, to hear you, to be shaped by you. We've got a room full of different personalities, right? 
I'm too loud, you're too quiet, you know, you're strange, you know, you're the wrong political party, like, you know, um, you're from this different race or this different ethnicity with cultural practices that don't sit right with me. Like, whatever it is, there's a million ways that we are so different from one another. But the heart of this meal is that it remembers that in the story, in the good news about Jesus Christ, that it turns us into something that we are not. And turns us into new kinds of humans that relate to each other in a new kind of way. Where people who have no business being together are together. Friends, that is the beauty of the gospel. That is the beauty of what this meal symbolizes. That is the beauty of what Paul was trying to communicate to the Corinthians. And I believe that he's trying to communicate to us this morning. So I'm excited even as we continue sharing in this meal together week after week and tons of other meals around your tables in your small groups and when you meet someone for coffee that when we break bread together in any way that we lean into this reality of who gospel has made us that it has reoriented everything that we know that we're not looking at ourselves that now our, our, our shape is different. Our orientation is different and we can love people the way Jesus loves them, the way Jesus loves us, flowing in us and through us to the people around us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So God, we're just so grateful for these moments <laughs> that we can sit next to people that are so different than us that we can be in a family with people that we disagree with, that um, have different values than us in some ways, who, who um, are, are just not people that we would maybe ever choose when we were choosing based on our own selfish needs and desires. But your gospel tells a different story. God, we are grateful for the fact that all of the, the, the sin and the shame and the guilt that makes us prone to just protect our own rights and protect ourselves above everything else, that you have borne all of that on your back on the shed blood of Jesus Christ and that you rose again so that we could now be the reshaped, reoriented people that you created us to be. So God, would you cause us to be a family that leads into that? Would you cause us, even in this very moment, would you reshape us and reorient us just a little bit more? As we go out there and start having conversations over coffee and danishes, would you reshape and reorient the way that we see one another? Would we look into each other's eyes and see that the person we are speaking to is loved and known and valued by you in a way that we cannot imagine? Would we give up of our own rights and of our own self? to love others well and give and share your love that is in us, that it would flow right through us to the people around us. We love you so much. We are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful for this family and this time together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.